You're listening to Return of the Birds, the serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin by John Burroughs. Thank you for choosing to listen to our podcast. We are grateful for your time and attention. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes. But you're welcome to stick around. Please become part of the growing Return of the Birds flock. Join our mailing list at returnofthebirds.com for exclusive early updates and access to our upcoming book projects. We don't spam because no one has time or patience for spam. Return of the Birds email will be worth your while. I want to give a special thank you to the women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I licensed and used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work. It's appreciated. Thanks. Outside the city limits, the great point of interest to the rambler and lover of nature is the Rock Creek region. Rock Creek is a large, rough, rapid stream which has its source in the interior of Maryland and flows into the Potomac between Washington and Georgetown. Its course, for five or six miles out of Washington, is marked by great diversity of scenery. Flowing in a deep valley which now and then becomes a wild gorge with overhanging rocks and high precipitous headlands, for the most part wooded, here reposing in long, dark reaches, there sweeping and hurrying around a sudden bend or over a rocky bed, receiving at short intervals small runs and spring rivulets, which open up vistas and outlooks to the right and left of the most charming description. Rock Creek has an abundance of all the elements that make up not only pleasing but wild and rugged scenery. There is, perhaps, not another city in the Union that has on its very threshold so much natural beauty and grandeur, such as men seek for in remote forests and mountains. A few touches of art would convert this whole region, extending from Georgetown to what is known as Crystal Springs, not more than two miles from the present State Department, into a park unequaled by anything in the world. There are passages between these two points as wild and savage, and apparently as remote from civilization as anything one meets within the mountain sources of the Hudson or the Delaware. One of the tributaries to Rock Creek within this limit is called Piney Branch. It is a small, noisy brook flowing through a valley of great natural beauty and picturesqueness, shaded nearly all the way by the woods of oak, chestnut, and beech, and abounding in dark recesses and hidden retreats. I must not forget to mention the many springs with which this whole region is supplied, each the center of some wild nook, perhaps the head of a little valley one or two hundred yards long, through which one catches a glimpse or hears the voice of the main creek rushing along below. My walks tend in this direction more frequently than in any other. Here the boys go too, troops of them, of a Sunday, to bathe and prowl around and indulge in the semi-barbarous instincts that still lurk within them. Life, in all its forms, is most abundant near water. The rank vegetation nurtures the insects, 
and the insects draw the birds. The first week in March, on some southern slope where the sunshine lies warm and long, I usually find the hepatica in bloom, though with scarcely an inch of stalk. In the spring runs, the skunk cabbage pushes its pike up through the mold, the flower appearing first, as if nature had made a mistake. It is not till about the 1st of April that many wildflowers may be looked for. In each little valley or spring run, some one species predominates. I know invariably where to look for the first liverwort and where the largest and finest may be found. On a dry, gravelly, half-wooded hill slope, the bird's foot violet grows in great abundance and is sparse in neighboring districts. This flower, which I never saw in the north, is the most beautiful and showy of all the violets and calls forth rapturous applause from all the persons who visit the woods. It grows in little groups and clusters and bears a close resemblance to the pansies of the garden. Its two purple velvety petals seem to fall over tiny shoulders like a rich cape. On the same slope, and on no other, I go about the first of May for lupine, or sundial, which makes the ground look blue from a little distance. On the other, or northern side of the slope, the arbutus, during the first half of April, perfumes the wild wood air. A few paces further on, in the bottom of the little spring run, the mandrake shades the ground with its miniature umbrellas. It begins to push its green finger points up through the ground by the first of April, but is not in bloom until the first of May. It has a single white wax-like flower with a sweet, sickish odor growing immediately beneath its broad, leafy top. By the same run grow watercresses and two kinds of anemones, the Pennsylvania and the Grove anemone. The bloodroot is very common at the foot of almost every warm slope in the Rock Creek woods, and, where the wind has tucked it up well with the cover lid of dry leaves, makes its appearance almost as soon as the liverwort. It is singular how little warmth is necessary to encourage these earlier flowers to put forth. It would seem as if some influence must come in advance underground and get things ready, so when the outside temperature is propitious, they at once venture out. I have found the bloodroot when it was still freezing two or three nights in the week, and have known at least three varieties of early flowers to be buried in eight inches of snow. Another abundant flower in the Rock Creek region is the spring beauty. Like most others, it grows in streaks, a few paces from where your attention is monopolized by violets or arbutus. It is arrested by the clatonia, growing in such profusion that it is impossible to set the foot down without crushing the flowers. Only the forenoon walker sees them in all their beauty, as later in the day their eyes are closed and their pretty heads drooped in slumber. In only one locality do I find the lady's slipper, a yellow variety. The flowers that overleap all bounds in this section are Houstonias. By the first of April, they are very noticeable in warm, damp places along the borders of the woods and in half-cleared fields. But by May, these localities are clouded with them. They become visible from the highway across wide fields and look like little puffs of smoke clinging close to the ground. On the 1st of May, I go to the Rock Creek or Piney Branch region to hear the wood thrush. I always find him by this date, leisurely chanting his lofty strain. Other thrushes are seen now also, or even earlier, as Wilson's, the olive-backed, the hermit, the two latter silent, 
but the former musical. Occasionally in the early part of May, I find the woods literally swarming with warblers, exploring every branch and leaf. From the tallest tulip to the lowest spice bush, so urgent is the demand for food during their long northern journeys. At night, they are up and away. Some varieties, as the blue yellowback, the chestnut-sided, and the black burnian, during their brief stay sing nearly as freely as in their breeding haunts. For two or three years I have chanced to meet little companies of the bay-breasted warbler, searching for food in an oak wood or on an elevated piece of ground. They kept well among the branches, were rather slow in their movements, and evidently disposed to tarry but a short time. The summer residents here, belonging to this class of birds, are few. I have observed the black and white creeping warbler, the Kentucky warbler, the worm-eating warbler, the redstart, and the gnatcatcher, breeding near Rock Creek. Of these, the Kentucky warbler is by far the most interesting, though quite rare. I meet with him in low, damp places in the woods, usually on the steep sides of some little run. I hear at intervals a clear, strong, bell-like whistle or warble, and presently catch a glimpse of the bird as he jumps up from the ground to take an insect or worm from the underside of a leaf. This is his characteristic movement. He belongs to the class of ground warblers, and his range is very low, indeed lower than that of any other species with which I am acquainted. He is on the ground nearly all the time, moving rapidly along, taking spiders and bugs, overturning leaves, peeping under sticks and into crevices, and every now and then leaping up eight or ten inches to take his game from beneath some overhanging leaf or branch. Thus each species has its range more or less marked. Draw a line three feet from the ground, and you will mark the usual limit of the Kentucky Warbler's quest for food. Six or eight feet higher bounds the usual range of such birds as the worm-eating warbler, the morning ground warbler, and the Maryland yellowthroat. The lower branches of the higher growths and the higher branches of the lower growths are plainly preferred by the black-throated blue-backed warbler in those localities where he is found. The thrushes feed mostly on and near the ground, while some of the vireos and the true flycatchers explore the highest branches, but the warblers, as a rule, are all partial to thick, rank undergrowths. The Kentucky warbler is a large bird for the genus, and quite notable in appearance. His back is a clear olive green, his throat and breast bright yellow. A still more prominent feature is a black streak on the side of his face, extending down the neck. Another familiar bird here, which I never met in the north, is the gnatcatcher, called by Audubon the blue-gray fly-catching warbler. In form and manner, it seems almost a duplicate of the catbird on a small scale. It mews like a young kitten, erects its tail, flirts, droops its wings, goes through a variety of motions when disturbed by your presence, and in many ways recalls its dusky prototype. Its color above is a light gray-blue, gradually fading till it becomes white on the breast and belly. It is a very small bird and has a long, facile, slender tail. Its song is a lip-sing, chattering, incoherent warble, now faintly reminding one of the goldfinch, now of a miniature catbird, then of a tiny yellowhammer, 
having much variety, but no unity and little cadence. Another bird which has interested me here is the Louisiana water thrush. Called also large-billed water thrush and water wagtail. It is one of a trio of birds which has confused the ornithologists much. The other two species are the well-known golden-crowned thrush or wood wagtail and the northern or small water thrush. The present species, though not abundant, is frequently met with along Rock Creek. It is a very quick and vivacious bird and belongs to the class of ecstatic singers. I have seen a pair of these thrushes on a bright May day, flying to and fro between two spring runs, alighting at intermediate points. The male breaking out into one of the most exuberant, unpremeditated strains I ever heard. Its song is a sudden burst, beginning with three or four clear round notes, much resembling certain tones of the clarinet, and terminating in a rapid, intricate warble. This bird resembles a thrush only in its color, which is olive brown above and grayish white beneath. with a speckled throat and breast. Its habits, manners, and voice suggest those of the lark. I seldom go the Rock Creek route without being amused and sometimes annoyed by the yellow-breasted chat. This bird also has something of the manners and build of the catbird, yet he is truly an original. The catbird is mild and feminine compared with this rollicking polyglot. His voice is very loud and strong and quite uncanny. No sooner have you penetrated his retreat, which is usually a thick undergrowth in low, wet localities near the woods or in old fields, than he begins his serenade, which for the variety, grotesqueness, and uncouthness of the notes is not unlike a country skimmerton. If one passes directly along, the bird may scarcely break the silence, but pause a while, or loiter quietly about, and your presence stimulates him to do his best. He peeps quizzically at you from beneath the branches and gives a sharp feline mew. In a moment more, he says very distinctly, Who, who? Then, in rapid succession, follows notes the most discordant that ever broke the sylvan silence. Now he barks like a puppy, then quacks like a duck, then rattles like a kingfisher, then squalls like a fox, then caws like a crow, then mews like a cat. Now he calls as if to be heard a long way off, then changes his key as if addressing the spectator. Though very shy and carefully keeping himself screened when you show any disposition to get a better view, he will presently, if you remain quiet, ascend a twig or hop out on a branch in plain sight, lop his tail, droop his wings, cock his head, and become very melodramatic.
In less than half a minute, he darts into the bushes again and tunes up. And so on till you are tired of listening. Observing one very closely one day, I discovered that he was limited to six notes or changes, which he went through in regular order, scarcely varying a note in a dozen repetitions. Sometimes, when a considerable distance off, he will fly down to have a nearer view of you. And such a curious expressive flight, legs extended, head lowered, wings rapidly vibrating, the whole action piquant and droll. The chat is an elegant bird, both in form and color. Its plumage is remarkably firm and compact. Color above, light olive green, beneath, bright yellow, beak, black and strong. The Cardinal Grosbeak, or Virginia Redbird, is quite common in the same localities, though more inclined to seek the woods. It is much sought after by bird fanciers and by boy gunners, and consequently is very shy. This bird suggests a British redcoat. His heavy, pointed beak, his high cockade, the black stripe down his face, the expression of weight and massiveness about his head and neck and his erect attitude give him a decided soldier-like appearance and there is something of the tone of the fife in his song or whistle, while his ordinary note, when disturbed, is like the clink of a saber. Yesterday, as I sat indolently swinging in the loop of a grapevine, beneath a thick canopy of green branches, in a secluded nook by a spring run, one of these birds came pursuing some kind of insect, but a few feet above me. He hopped about, now and then uttering his sharp note, till, some moth or beetle trying to escape, he broke down through the cover almost where I sat. The effect was like a firebrand coming down through the branches. Instantly catching sight of me, he darted away much alarmed. The female is tinged with brown and shows but little red except when she takes flight. By far the most abundant species of woodpecker about Washington is the red-headed. It is more common than the robin, not in the deep woods, but among the scattered dilapidated oaks and groves on the hills and in the fields. I hear almost every day his uncanny note, like that of some larger tree toad, proceeding from an oak grove just beyond the boundary. He is a strong-scented fellow, and very tough. Yet, how beautiful, as he flits about the open woods, connecting the trees by a gentle arc of crimson and white. This is another bird with a military look his deliberate, dignified ways, and his bright uniform of red, white, and steel blue bespeak him an officer of rank. Another favorite beat of mine is northeast of the city. Looking from the capital in this direction, scarcely more than a mile distant, you see a broad green hill slope falling very gently and spreading into a large expanse of meadowland. The summit, if so gentle a swell of greensward, may be said to have a summit, is covered with a grove of large oaks and sweeping back out of sight like a mantle. The front line of a thick forest bounds the sides. This emerald landscape is seen from a number of points in the city. Looking along New York Avenue from Northern Liberty Market, the eye glances, as it were, from the red clay of the street and alights upon this fresh scene in the distance. It is a standing ovation to the citizens to come forth and be refreshed. As I turn from some hot, hard street, how inviting it looks. I bathe my eyes in it as in a fountain. 
sometimes troops of cattle are seen grazing upon it. In June, the gathering of the hay may be witnessed. When the ground is covered with snow, numerous stacks or clusters of stacks are still left for the eye to contemplate. The woods which clothe the east side of this hill and sweep away to the west are among the most charming to be found in the district. The main growth is oak and chestnut, with a thin sprinkling of laurel, azalea, and dogwood. It is the only locality in which I have found the dog-tooth violet in bloom, and the best place I know of to gather arbutus. On one slope the ground is covered with moss, through which the arbutus trails its glories. Emerging from these woods towards the city, one sees the white dome of the capital soaring over the green swell of earth immediately in front, and lifting its 4,000 tons of iron gracefully and lightly into the air, of all the sights in Washington, that which will survive the longest in my memory is the vision of the great dome, thus rising cloud-like above the hills. You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Post-production and mastering by Counterweight Creative, recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. Engineered, produced, and directed by Peter Medic. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. For more updates, we invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 44from26.com or visit returnofthebirds.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit returnofthebirds.com to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Finally, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Till next time, chirp away.